0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital pertaining to consumer-facing startups. That's both consumer technology and physical goods. We're interested in learning what the world's leading VCs look for in founders and opportunities, as well as learning from venture-backed B2C founders who have grown their businesses to incredible heights. Thank you, Ezra Galston, for introing me to today's guest, Nikhil Trivedi. Nikhil previously was the managing director of Shasta Ventures and writes The Next Big Thing, which is an awesome online publication that I highly recommend you check out. Some of his investments include Literati, Tali, Canva, Farmer's Dog, and The Pill Club. His focus has been on consumer, particularly consumer subscription business models, which was the main focus in today's conversation. In the show notes, we have links to his three essays about consumer subscription, which I highly recommend you check out. Without further ado, here's Nikhil. Nikhil, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time. So you've recently written like this series of posts about consumer subscription business and how you're very bullish about consumer subscription business, that they're the future, your frameworks uh, when analyzing opportunities. And you made the argument that marketplaces and advertising type businesses were a dominant business model in the first 20 years of the internet. But what are some of the shortcomings of these two models? And why has it taken this long for consumer facing subscription businesses to really really take off.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. You know, As you mentioned in my post about consumer subscriptions, I wrote about how subscriptions have become the dominant business model of the internet today, but that hasn't been the case for that long. And so if you look at the huge consumer businesses that have been built over the last 20 years, a bunch of them are advertising-based businesses and a few of them are marketplace business models. Now, I think there are shortcomings to each of those models. If you take advertising, for instance, there can often be a lack of alignment between the business's objective of generating revenue and maximizing revenue, and the consumer's objective of having an amazing consumer experience. And so if you think about, you know, platforms like Facebook, you know, I think one could reasonably argue that the ads have actually been detrimental to the end user experience, particularly as you consider privacy, you know, the data usage required for businesses like Facebook to serve up targeted ads. So I think that lack of alignment is the core issue with the advertising business model. And then on marketplaces, I think the big shortcoming is just the cold start problem. They take a long time to get to scale, to scale both supply and demand. And they also take a lot of capital to scale both supply and demand. With subscriptions, I think what was challenging up until the last probably five to 10 years is that the payment rails weren't built such that both businesses and consumers could really trust the subscription to work and to not you know, cheat either side. And so that's been a key enabler. And I think compared to the advertising business model, for instance, there's really strong alignment with the subscription business model between a consumer and the business
0: that makes a lot of sense thanks so much for explaining it and i really by the way enjoyed reading all three of your pieces about this and uh you talk in one of your pieces about your 10 factors framework which we're going to be including links to as well as your website as well in the show notes but what's one factor that you think is often overlooked when founders are thinking about starting a subscription business
1: yeah, uh, it's a great question, Mike. So real quick on the 10 factors, you know, I described 10 factors to consider when you evaluate a consumer subscription business. And those 10 factors are number one, is it a must have versus a nice to have? Number two, is it an existing recurring behavior versus a new recurring behavior? Number three, conversion from free tier or trial to paid subscriber? Number four, the subscription gross profit? Number five, the cohort retention? Number six, the payback period? Number seven, the total addressable market for the Act One, which is the initial subscription offering? Number eight, the attachment and bundling potential to Act Two, Act Three, and beyond? Number nine, win back potential number 10 network effects. And the reason I just wanted to lay those out quickly for your listeners is all 10 of these factors are important. And the reason I wrote the post was that I believe you have to take into account sort of all 10 of them as you build one of these businesses or as you think about investing in one of these businesses. Now, to your question of which one of them is perhaps the most overlooked, I think for a venture-backable consumer subscription business, the one that is perhaps most overlooked is that transition from the initial subscription offering, the act one, to the act two and the act three and beyond. I think a lot of people think about that initial wedge of, of what their subscription business is gonna be. But in reality, when you think about most successful consumer subscription businesses, they've had an act two, they've had an act three. And I think the sooner you start to think about that, the better off you'll be as both the builder of one of these businesses and as an investor in them.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's interesting because we did a previous episode as well with Mike Gafari about marketplaces and investing in marketplaces. And he thought that because he also built a marketplace, that one of the things that he overlooked was unique distribution strategy, for example. So I always love just hearing about what founders might not focus on immediately so much and try to pick that apart. So that's really helpful. Thank you. So when you say subscription, I know you're you mean it quite broadly in terms of the actual products, you know, physical goods I know you wrote about and also software and you know, with physical goods, you're always going to have marginal costs where in software, marginal costs can be minimal. Even in subscription businesses, when you mentioned, you know, and evening, the playing field, how do you look at physical subscription businesses and software businesses? Are they more closely related than you think?
1: Yeah, that is my perspective you know, a lot of folks who've written about consumer subscriptions have been very specific to writing about consumer subscription software. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write these pieces is I've invested in both digital subscription businesses, such as Canva, Class Dojo, at Shasta, we invested in Zwift and a number of others, as well as physical subscription businesses. You know, The third part of my subscription series is about the farmer's dog, which is this fresh pet food investment that I led at the Series A in 2017, which offers a physical product delivered to folks as a subscription. And in my experience, there are actually a lot of similarities between these two different types of subscription businesses, physical and digital. And so you know, I think that's perhaps something that I believe that others do, don't. And even when you think about a characteristic such as gross margins and marginal cost, interestingly, if you look at Netflix, which is arguably the greatest sort of pure consumer subscription business and and a course, a digital subscription business, Netflix's gross margins are in sort of the 40% range, which actually make them lower than the gross margins of a number of physical subscription businesses. Now, the difference is that Netflix has a zero marginal cost of adding a new subscriber because a lot of their cost is fixed versus variable. So that is a difference. But my argument is that both physical and digital subscription businesses can be enormous businesses and, and, you know, venture scale outcomes.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation I had previously with uh, Sonny Dillon. At uh, Signia Partners. And what he was saying, how he thinks that, for example, like the beauty industry is very much overlooked, where, and he compared it almost to a SaaS company in terms of margins, because in beauty, you can get up to like 80% when it comes to margins. So I certainly agree with your sentiments.
1: By the way, but one other thing to mention on this is if you look at a business like Amazon, right, which started in physical Athens in a category like books, which is consumable and, and quite recurring in nature, the fascinating thing about consumer businesses today is that they can be both physical and digital. You know, at peloton too which is a hybrid you know physical and digital subscription and so i just think the lines are blurring enough that i wanted to, to speak about both these
0: pieces absolutely it makes a lot of sense and i wanted to also touch on as well and about how you see important something that i think about is the freemium model versus the trial period focusing i guess mainly on like software businesses per se what are some questions that founders should ask him or herself to help decide what would be best option in terms of trying to give a potential customer an idea or a touch point with their business
1: yeah, look, I think this question of freemium versus free trial is a really important question. And at some point, I think I should probably write a post on this. And I'm sure someone else has written a high quality one on it. But to me, the first question, the actually more important question is, do you offer anything for free at all? You know, Because for a lot of businesses, dangling something out for free can actually lead to a very different consumer psychology than if everything is just gated and paid. And so I, I think... Pre- probably the more important question is, do you offer anything for free? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think maybe hard enough about that question because once you offer something for free, it's actually very hard to sort of remove that and go back. And then on freemium versus free trials specifically, to me, the big question is, does the trial and the time limit accomplish something by sort of limiting the duration of which you get to try something out? And then for freemium, I think the key question you have to have as a builder of one of these businesses is, are there a clear enough set of features to justify the difference between the free version of the product and the paid version of the product? And I think a good example is something like Spotify, where the free version is advertising-based, And so the justification is actually, there's a revenue model there. So it's justified from a business standpoint. It's not as great of a consumer experience. And so the premium version can be easily justified for the consumer. And I think you have to have a very, very clear understanding of what that difference is.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for touching on it. Wanted, wanted to also touch on too, going a little off script here, about pricing as well and how you think about pricing. Because, and I actually heard this, that they got me thinking about it on a podcast episode on Invest Like the Best, which I absolutely love that podcast. I forget the guest's name, but they touches on how in a subscription business, if an entrepreneur comes to you and says, or a founder comes to you and a company's scaling, we're able to increase prices and we haven't seen a big churn rate. In some ways, that's obviously a good thing, but as well, that means that maybe then there's not as much growth growth in terms of new customers wanting your business, and you're actually almost limited by growth. I was just curious on how you think about price increase when it comes to subscription.
1: Well, I think the best subscription businesses have a lot of pricing power, right? They're such a must have, they become so fundamental to consumers needs, such that they have the ability to increase prices. And I think, again, you know, Netflix is best in class here, where, you know, they've, they've done multiple price increases over the years, they've been sort of very deliberate about their pricing strategy. They've also been able to only do, you know, monthly and not even offer, you know, an annual product, which is, by the way, another big consideration as 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 builders think about pricing. Which is, you know, do you have a monthly and an annual option? Often an annual option is actually better for lock-in, but there's some limitations. They perhaps don't maximise LTV by offering an annual discount. So there's a lot of thought that I think needs to go into pricing. To me, what I encourage the founders that I work with to do is to also experiment to understand how much pricing power you have from the earliest days and use that to your advantage over time. But you know you have to keep growing. And if I had to prioritize, sort of subscriber growth versus pricing maximization, I would prioritize growth for a very long period of time against, you know, pricing
0: Against like price increases, right? Yeah. Got it. And in terms of the early stages, what are some of the ways, creative ways that entrepreneurs can test their pricing?
1: A number of founders that I've worked with on this have just, you know, one day decided to raise prices across the board. You know, it depends on the type of subscription product you have. You know, in some cases, you are able to sort of isolate a test group and, you know, do an A-B test on pricing. You can certainly test conversion very simply without even locking folks into a higher price before you change it. So there's a number of different ways. Again, maybe something that I should write about down the road.
0: No, that's great. That's great. I love it. And one of the things that I get curious about, you know, I had on Eric Paley, who I absolutely love that episode, and Eric's fascinating. And Eric said that, you know, VCs... I know you touched on market size a bit as well in your piece. VCs get market size and adjustable markets notoriously wrong in many cases, since a lot of the big winners come from, you know, blue oceans or markets that really haven't been developed yet. Just putting your investor hat on, how do you think about blue oceans and new markets when you're analyzing opportunities?
1: Yeah, look, I think first of all, Eric is absolutely right. When I look at some of the mistakes that I've made, that I've seen others make, probably the hardest thing to gauge in the early stages is just how big a market's going to be 10 years from now, which is when you actually are getting to an outcome for a lot of venture backed businesses. And the very best companies create their own markets and sort of create their own opportunity to enable the market to be big enough to build a really big business. And so what I look for is, if there are rapid signs of customer love, you know, from the earliest stages, if some of those key factors that I discuss in the middle of the 10 factors post, such as subscription annual gross profit being high, a uh, cohort retention being high, payback period being low, If those things are present, then the market could actually surprise you on the upside at how big it is. And that's kind of how I tried to invest at the Series A stage in consumer subscription businesses, where, look, the farmer's dog, which I talked about in the third piece in the series, is a great example of a company that a lot of people overlooked based on market size in the early days, including, you know, my own partnership had the most pushback for me in that area. The reality is that there were so many early, early signs of product market fit. And today their act one business in fresh human grade pet food has scaled to hundreds of millions in revenue. And that premium segment of the market, the healthy segment of the market has grown as well during that period by a significant amount. And so if you look at examples like the farmer's dog, if you look at examples like Peloton, I think what you'll find is that the market could have been overlooked size-wise in the earliest days, but there was so much customer love. And that's kind of what created the huge opportunity.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Peloton. When I had on a Mike Duda, who was an investor in Peloton, he was like, Mike believes that like market sizing is is very much overrated in terms of as a VC. And he was saying on that episode, when Peloton was first starting out, what was the market size? Like, how do we even do market sizing for that business? So I mean, backing up, we'd love to learn obviously more about you. I know we jumped right in here. But what was your initial attraction to venture capital and technology?
1: Yeah, you know, I moved from the UK to Silicon Valley when I was a teenager. My parents' jobs brought us to the Bay Area when I was in eighth grade, and that completely changed my life. I mean, I'd used the internet, you know, of course, uh, I had a an interest in computers when I lived in England, but getting to be in the heart of Silicon Valley during high school and just being able to see sort of what was happening in this area in the sort of 2002 to 2007 time frame, you know, post Com boom and bust with the growth of businesses like Google and Facebook, which I got when I was in high school and LinkedIn and, and others that were sort of scaling during that period. It just blew me away. And I got to also learn computer science in high school from still one of my favorite educators of all time, my high school computer science teacher, Mr. Thibodeau. And so the combination of learning CS in, in high school, being in Silicon Valley in the heart of it, you know, got me excited to start working on startups from basically day one in college.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for giving us a glimpse about that transformative experience about moving from London to Silicon Valley. You know, during these times of COVID, everyone's remote. How important do you think nowadays it is for a founder to actually be in Silicon Valley? I
1: think it's changed so fundamentally, you know, in the the 18 years since I first arrived in Silicon Valley to today. And so to answer your question directly, I, I think it's less important than ever before because there are success examples everywhere you look. You know, there are some phenomenal technology businesses being built in every corner of the world. And the amazing thing is that the democratization of information, which used to be sort of siloed in Silicon Valley and in a few other places, has just been incredible over the last decade in particular. I mean, even when I was working on a startup during college, there were not that many blog posts about sort of all the things to do and not to do as a founder from the earliest stages. I mean, there was barely any talk of product market fit, for instance, and now, like that term has been defined and sort of every angle and aspect of it has been analyzed. If you just look at Substack writers, for instance, you'll sort of find an incredible set of work analyzing, I think, every area of building a business. And that to me is the fundamental thing that's, that's changed over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. And it means that anyone anywhere can build a high growth, massive technology business.
0: How comfortable are you investing in companies that are fully distributed? Even, you know, post-COVID will still be fully distributed and kind of all around the world. Yeah,
1: I feel comfortable about it. Again, I, the meaning of the office has changed, and it was changing for some time. But it, the acceleration of that change has happened due to COVID-19. You know, I think the question still remains around culture. You know, I think culture is hard to build in person. In some ways, it's harder to build remotely. And so, I think when I analyze remote teams, my level of questioning on the culture and sort of the analyzing of the founder's thoughtfulness when it comes to building the team and building culture is just higher than, than an in-person team because we're still kind of figuring out exactly what this remote model looks like. And I think entrepreneurs who are able to, number one, figure out how to hire high quality talent without having any sort of constraint of location. And number two, think really thoughtfully about culture and have a set of principles around that are way better positioned to succeed in the fully remote remote world
0: yeah i absolutely agree you know especially the early stages culture is absolutely crucial it's not the most important thing and figuring out ways to try to have culture while everyone's remote it's a very difficult task to have even though we're now seeing all these incredible products come out for new ways to chat and everything but it's still very very difficult it's hard to replace that in-person experience when you're meeting with founders are you finding it more difficult to establish conviction with them since you're having to meet with them remotely
1: I'm honestly surprised that it hasn't been that hard. But if I reflect on it, I think one of the reasons is if you already have some context about the founders, if it's come through a warm introduction, if you have a number of connection points, then it's just way easier to build a relationship. And so what I do think is hard is getting conviction about someone you just don't have any prior context around, you don't have sort of the warm connection around. And so I do worry that that leaves out a set of founders that just aren't as well connected from raising money during this time. So that's been my observation.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because of course, also when you're building rapport, you've at least had the commonality there as well, which is also very crucial. What's your favorite question to ask founders when you're meeting with them for the first time?
1: Yeah, I love to ask, you know, what's not going well and what's keeping you up. And the reason I, I like to ask that is I want to understand, is a founder self-aware? Is she or he able to sort of diagnose quickly what's really important to focus on and what's really important to prioritize because oftentimes those are the things that that should be the things that are really keeping a founder up and so I use that as a way to analyze a founder and also be able to have an open and honest conversation hopefully around something that's not working as well in the business because once we do get into business together post-investment that's a lot of what we're going to spend time on
0: that's a really really great point So what's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: I think that the main thing that I hope to change and have some legacy around, you know, 20 plus years from now is diversity and inclusivity in our, in our industry. You know, I think we certainly need more underrepresented minorities in venture capital. We should be a gender equal industry. And I hope that 20 plus years from now, I've had an impact on this and made it more diverse and more inclusive. So that's the number one thing that I hope to change.
0: No, I appreciate that. What are some of the things in order to increase diversity in venture capital that you'd like to see maybe other investors do or are currently doing and to help create the ecosystem more inclusive?
1: Well, I think it starts from, you know, there are very real hiring decisions you can make as the leader of a venture firm. Of course, the problem is not just confined to decision makers in the venture industry, but the types of founders who we're investing in. And it's also about the companies that we invest in taking diversity seriously. And finally, I would say we can't leave limited partners out of this conversation. I think the more diverse limited partners are and the more that they care about diversity in our industry, the more... More GPs and firms will just have to change and have to adapt. And so to me, there isn't a silver bullet here. It's sort of a number of constituents in the system making this a priority. And I think we have seen real progress on this dimension over the last several years. But it's still got a long way to go.
0: Yeah, I think that those are all really good points. I mean, it's similar to my conversation when I had Soraya Darabi on. She was saying now, if you really want to see a lot of change, it starts from the top. So it starts with the LPs and pension funds and some institutional investors that actually pave the way to invest in underrepresented investors. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: This is such a hard question. Um, I think on the personal side, if I pick one that continues to ring in my mind a lot, it's Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Just an incredible personal essay about being Black in America and what that means. And just a super powerful book that has stayed with me since I read it, I think, four or five years ago. On the professional side, again, this is really difficult, but, you know, Leading, which is co-authored by Sir Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital and Sir Alex Ferguson, the longtime manager of Manchester United, is right up there as one of my all-time favorites. And the reason is that those two are, are heroes of mine have been a longtime Man U fan since I was a kid. And of course, you know, Sir Michael is arguably the greatest venture capitalist of all time. And so that book was, I mean, I was so excited when it came out and had to very quickly read it and uh, continue to have it close at hand today.
0: No, thanks so much for mentioning. I'm a big Tottenham Hotspur fan. So uh, (laughs) I know, I I, I know. Season. Yeah, I know. I, I know we gave you some trouble. I think last weekend, yeah, but um, that
1: was painful. That was really. Painful.
0: But yeah, um, I'll certainly have to check both out. I mean, the between the world and me sounds really fascinating, as well as leading. So, um, and also, even though I'm a Tottenham fan, I mean, you have to admire what Sir Alex did with Manchester United. It was pretty unbelievable the amount of championships and just year over year it was almost a given that his team was going to win the league. So, what's one company that's on your anti portfolio, and what was the reason why you passed? Yeah, I mean, one that
1: continues to me is Robinhood because, you know, of course, it's, I think, worth $12 billion today, something like that. And I had Baijir and Vlad come in at the series A stage. They'd already raised a seed round and were thinking about the A. And, you know, I think the, the main story here is that we overanalyzed the company on a number of dimensions. We looked at priors such as Zeco, which tried to do free stock trading back in sort of the web 1.0 era, and it didn't work. You know, we talked to several others in the industry who were very skeptical. And yet, mobile had really changed the game. And you could tell in that Robinhood experience from the earliest days that there was something magical about being able to trade stocks so simply on your phone. And the other thing is that they did have an incredible wait list of users. Again, I think we. We discounted that because it was just a waitlist versus hundreds of thousands of existing active users. But it turned out that that waitlist demand was real. It turned out that mobile was really a game changer. It also turned out that they were able to have a business model over time, which was another question that we had in the earliest days. And they've just executed supremely well. So hats off to them. And, and it's obviously one that I regret not having done
0: well, if it makes you feel any better, Robin Hood was the same response of a Connie Machabella <laughs> as well. well. So,
1: Connie's better than me. So, that does make me feel a little bit better.
0: <laughs> so, my final question for you is first of all, I encourage everyone to read all three of Nickel's pieces about consumer subscription businesses. But if you had to say, what's one piece of advice for founders building subscription businesses, what would it be?
1: I'll cheat, I think, and try to give two. So, the first is I think there isn't one silver bullet, as I mentioned earlier. The reason I wrote this post is that I think every single one of these factors is really important. And, you know, you can't just only think about one, you've got to think about all. And these businesses take time to build, they take a lot of iteration, they take a lot of creativity. And so, that's why I wanted to put this set of factors out there. But if you really pressed me on, hey, like, what's that one thing that you have To think about. You know, I continue to come back to retention and a business's potential to have customers for decades as the single most important factor to consider with with these businesses. And it's hard to sometimes tell if that's going to be the case in the early days. But I think you as a founder building one of these companies has to believe you're building something that can live with people for 10, 20, 30 years if you get it right. And I think if you have that mentality from the earliest days, you have a high probability at at success.
0: No, I think that those are really great points. There's not a one-size-fit-all for really any business. And I appreciate you always. The founder has to be looking about this as the long-term and not the short-term. So that is that is really helpful. Well, Nikhil, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. This has been fun.
1: Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for having me and keep doing great work. Really love your, your podcast.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Nikhil. I highly recommend following him on Twitter, NBT, as well as checking out his amazing blog, The Next Big Thing. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question, you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit consumerVC.com Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.